Well, today we have a series of texts that I'm going to read. Um, we begin with 1 Peter 5, 8 that we mentioned last week, but then we're going to continue from there, all dealing with the same subject that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, which is Satan's schemes, the ways in which the devil uh, seeks to undo us, to lead us astray, to tempt us, to bring us under God's condemnation, to discourage us, to cause us to experience a, a lack or a crisis of faith. Uh, but the first is 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Peter says, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 4.11. Give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 6.11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6.16. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And there are many other passages that speak about the devil's work. And uh, this is one of the great things, I think, that the modern church, especially in Western industrialized nations, is very um, unmindful of, and that is the reality of the devil and uh, his works among the sons and daughters of men. Uh, the ancient world, those who uh, were a part of Old Testament history and much of the primitive world today, has a very real sense, a very real understanding of the, of the forces of darkness that exist. But we in the West, who are so educated, so sophisticated, who know so much, often give uh, very slight attention to the fact that there is a devil who really exists and who really does seek to undo God's people and blind people's minds from the truth. In fact, I would say that this is one of the greatest of his tricks, uh, the greatest of all of them, is to convince people that he doesn't exist. Because if we are not aware that we have an enemy, uh, he can be all the more effective uh, in, in trick, tricking us up. So today we're going to wrap up our series uh, on the subject of Satan's schemes by talking about the importance of God's word. Now, in the passages that we just read, we learn a number of things, including that the devil is our great enemy. Uh, who seeks to lead us into sin and thereby bring us under God's condemnation. That is his ultimate goal. The devil is only a creature, as we've talked about before. He is no match for God in terms of wisdom or power or might or anything, and he cannot attack God directly. And so the only way he can do so is indirectly by attacking those whom God loves, and that is those who are made in his image. And so the only way he can really effectively attack the people of God, or people generally, is by getting them to sin against God, tempting them, leading them away from God so that they themselves come under God's judgment. And this is the devil's great task. This is what he has pledged himself to do. Uh, we are told in these passages that we just read that we are to give the devil no opportunity. We're told to resist him, to stand fast against him, we're told to use the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's this last point that we want to expand upon this morning. The most effective way of standing fast against the devil and his schemes is to be thoroughly imbued with the Word of God. 
I cannot impress upon you enough the importance of the word of God in this. The devil would like nothing more than to turn you away from God's word. And why is that? Because he knows that what Paul says in Romans is true, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. There's nothing that foils Satan's schemes more effectively than a living and vibrant faith in the hearts of God's people. But that faith is only produced by the word of God. And this is a very important point to remember. There is nothing the devil fears in man more deeply or more fearsomely than a deeply rooted faith in the heart of man. But again, this faith doesn't appear spontaneously in the human heart. It doesn't appear spontaneous. Just like in the natural world, there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. So in the spiritual world, in matters of faith, there is no such thing as a spontaneous generation of faith. Faith comes through hearing the word of God. It doesn't come through the study of philosophy or science or history, as important as the study of those things are in other respects. But faith comes only through hearing or through reading, somehow interacting with God's word. Now, this is true, of course, in the, in the case of our initial conversion, which is to say that the Word of God is, in the, is the instrument by which God leads us to repentance and faith. And that's what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 10 when he says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. He's talking about the initial conception of faith in the human heart that results in salvation. And the Bible speaks about this in a number of other contexts as well. Peter, for instance, says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. All right, we have been born again through the activity, through the power of God's word. Consider what he says there very carefully, that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, this doesn't contradict what Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he attributes the new birth to the working of the Holy Spirit because the Word and the Spirit work together. The Word furnishes the material to be believed about God, right? The Word is how we know God. There are certain things we can know about God by looking out into the world that he has made. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. His divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature— we, we look out into the world and we, any rational human being would say this didn't just happen. So, somebody, something had to have been a creative force or power to make all of these things. But what we can know about God through nature, through natural revelation, is pretty limited. The way we know God thoroughly, or as much as he's pleased to make himself known to people in this life, is through his self-revelation through his self-disclosure in Scripture. He teaches us far more fully about himself through the Word of God. And so we are confronted with the Word. Maybe it's a person who's, who's never believed before, has never heard before, and they hear the Word of God, that he is the Creator, that he is the Almighty One, that he is just, that he is holy, and that people have sinned against him. And the remedy that God has appointed for sin is sending his son into the world to die as a savior and to make atonement for sin. And they hear the word of God and faith springs up in the heart and they respond in faith and we are born again. Okay, And so 
Uh, we are born again through the power of God's word, but that word is inherently powerful through the working of the Holy Spirit, the word and the spirit working together. So again, God furnishes, uh, the word of God furnishes the material to believe, be believed about him because it's his self-revelation, and the Spirit, working with the Word, attests to the truthfulness of God's Word. Paul says in another context that, that the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit. This is talking about our assurance of salvation, but it's also true uh, as, as the Spirit bears witness to the Word, testifying to our own hearts and convincing us of its truth. The word through the power of the Spirit produces faith. The two work together. In the book of Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active and powerful. There is no other word like God's word. Every other word is inert. Right? There is no inherent power. If you speak a word, if you were to say something like God says, if you were to say, let there be light, you know what would happen? Nothing. Unless somebody was standing by a light switch and flipped it on. All right? Our words are inert. They lack power. But when God speaks, things happen. Again, we can think about the power of God's word by some of the statements that are made about it. In Jeremiah 23, 29, for instance, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and, my, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. His word is living and active and powerful. It was by his word that God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And actually in the Hebrew, it's even more concise than this. Light be, and light was came into existence. This has always fascinated me, the creative activity of God as it's portrayed in the book of Genesis. God simply speaks things into existence and they appear. The creative, powerful word of God. This is why David says in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. He spoke the world into existence. Again, his word is living and active and powerful through the Holy Spirit. And we see the Spirit and the word working together in creation. Genesis 1, verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the prelude to verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And the implication is that the Spirit is there to enact the Word of God as it's being spoken. The Spirit performs what God speaks, and the world begins to take shape. God's Word is very powerful. There is nothing that he speaks that will not come to pass. The book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, beginning in verse 10 as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God speaks, 
But he never speaks in vain because his word will never return to him void. It will never be an ineffectual word. He speaks and it happens. The power inherent in the word of God brings conviction of sin. It produces repentance and faith when his word is spoken with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So his word is like no other word. But the word of God is vital not only with respect to our initial conversion, producing that initial faith in the heart, but also with respect to our spiritual growth. That is, our growth in faith and our growth in the Christian graces as well. Let me put it to you very plainly. You will not grow apart from God's word. You will not grow apart from God's word. And indeed, you cannot grow apart from God's word. And this is why Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of his word, that, it may, that, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for the milk of the word, that by it we might grow. The writer of Hebrews admonishes us to grow to maturity by becoming skilled in the word of righteousness, not in speculative philosophy, not through the university system, not through human learning, but through the word of righteousness, which is just a convenient way of expressing all of God's written revelation given to us through the prophets and the apostles. We grow by, by being uh, rooted in or skilled in the, the word of righteousness. The psalmist tells us that there is a blessing for him who delights in God's word and meditates upon it day and night. We simply cannot emphasize enough the importance of God's word. The devil knows this importance much better than we do. Let me tell you, he knows this much better than we do. And he seeks to turn us away from his word, from God's word. Sometimes he does this by contradiction. Sometimes by distraction. Sometimes by intimidation. And sometimes by other means. In the garden, he sought to turn Adam and Eve away from God's word by contradiction. Did God say you will surely die? You will surely not die. He contradicted God's word, taking their focus off his word by giving a different and contradictory word and claiming that it was true and not God's word. But let us never forget that God is true and the devil is a liar. Even the father of lies, as Jesus said, he was the first to tell a lie, and he is either directly or indirectly behind every other lie. Jesus said of the scribes and the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, right? Because they were lying about him. And this is when he says he was a liar from the beginning, and there's, there's no truth in him, for he is the father of lies, and you are speaking like your father. Well, how does the devil contradict God's word? In a variety of ways. What God labels sin, the devil says, is not sin. When God says that he will punish sin, the devil says that he won't. When God says that he will forgive our sin if we repent, the devil says that he will hold our sins against us forever, and so discourage repentance. 
What God says applies to everyone. The devil whispers in our ear doesn't really apply to us. Often his attacks are directly aimed at contradicting what God has said. Remember what Paul writes in in Romans chapter 3, let God be true though every man is a liar and though the devil himself is a liar. In other words, if God has said something clearly and plainly, it is the truth. Well, regardless whether he says it plainly or clearly or whether he says it enigmatically, whatever God says, it is true. And every contradictory word is false and a lie. So sometimes his attacks are aimed at contradicting what God has said. Sometimes the devil turns our attention away from God's word by distraction. This, I would say, is one of the leading ways in which he does this, by distraction. I'm too busy with my work. I'm too busy with my family. I'm too busy pursuing my recreations. I'm too busy trying to get rich or trying to become powerful. Too busy doing whatever to give my time and energy to read and reflect upon God's word. Really. I mean, let's get this right. Let me get this right. The God of heaven and earth, the almighty creator, has spoken. And you are so important, and what you're doing is so important that you don't have time to listen. You don't have time to check it out. I mean, who do we think we are? When we say, I I don't have time to listen to God, the maker of heaven and earth, my creator, my savior, my judge. I don't have time. Who are we to think that we can't carve out, say, 10 or 15 minutes a day to read a chapter or two of the Bible and reflect upon it, meditate upon it, pray over it? Don't allow yourself to be distracted from God's word. Reading his word and applying yourself to it is the most important thing that you will do all day. I don't care what you have on your agenda or what is not on your agenda because it's unforeseeable, but reading his word is the most important thing that you will do on any day of the week. God is speaking to you. He's instructing you. And remember that his word has a power that's inherent that is transformative. We will never be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ unless we internalize the word of God. The Spirit working through the Word, bringing about change from the inside out. So don't allow yourself to be distracted from His Word. Sometimes the devil turns our attention away from God's Word by fear and intimidation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus told the church at Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. I think this is very interesting. He doesn't say the local authorities, um, the the pro-council of the province is going to do this, but the devil is going to do this. This is very, very suggestive of the idea that it's the devil who is behind the persecution of the saints. And in fact, there are other ways in which this is expressed in Scripture as well. We'll talk about this in a moment. Now, I think all of what we're saying this morning is illustrated very well by a parable that Jesus told. It's probably one of his most famous parables. It's the parable of the sower that we find in Matthew chapter 13. 
parable of the sower. Beginning at verse 3 of Matthew 13, it says, Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, reach up and check. Do you have ears? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then a few verses later, he goes on and gives an explanation as the disciples ask, you know, tell us the meaning of this parable. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the devil, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for those, or as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Okay, so Jesus is explaining why it is that there are some who hear and receive his word and others who do not. The problem is not in the sower, nor in the seed, right? These are constants, the same sower, the same seed. What's different is the type of soil. Or to put it another way, the difference is in those who hear the word. And one of the other accounts of this We're told that the Son of Man is the sower, and the seed is the Word of God. So the Son of God remains a constant. The Word remains a constant. What is different is where the seed falls, what kind of soil, what kind of heart uh, hears the Word. So the different types of soil represent different kinds of people who hear the Word. Some of them receive it, and some do not. There's also a difference between those who receive it. Some who receive the word of God at first fail to bear fruit at last. And there's a difference, too, among those who bear fruit. Some bring forth fruit at a rate of a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Let's look at each of these a little more carefully. In verse 4, it says, As the sower sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And Jesus' explanation of this in verse 19 is, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And here we see the activity of Satan. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. In Luke's version of this, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The devil does not want people to hear the word of God with understanding. He seeks to blind people's minds to the truth. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
that the God of this world, who by whom he means the devil, the God of this world blinds the eyes, blinds the minds of unbelievers so they don't see the glory of Christ. He blinds people's minds to the truth. And so to the extent that people hear the word at all, they listen maybe with only casual indifference. They don't listen to the word of God with the intent to receive it, with the intent to be taught by it, with the intent to respond in obedience. They listen to the word perhaps out of curiosity or maybe out of a sense of duty. It's Sunday, I better go to church, listen to the sermon, but not really listen. Maybe they hear the word of God or search the scriptures only so they can have their own opinions verified. I want to find something in here that backs up what I want to believe. And that's often how scripture is distorted. Seeking to hear or see our own opinions reflected back to us. Paul talks about those who have itching ears and accumulate to themselves teachers uh, who will uh, tell them only what they want to hear. These are people who, who don't listen to God's word intentionally and with a purpose to understand and to receive and respond appropriately. In verse 5, he says, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And then in verses 20 and 21, again, Jesus gives the explanation. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, these are the ones who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. Yet they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And when tribulation and persecution, basically synonymous words, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So he's taking an example from um, something that was a common experience in that day. The tillable soil in Israel is found atop layers of limestone and bedrock that lie very close to the surface. And it often happens that as a sower goes out to sow, some will fall on a good soil, the deep root system can develop, and others will fall on this rocky soil. And during the rainy season, there's, this is not much of a problem because seed gets plenty of moisture and begins to sprout, and there's no discernible difference between the plants growing in the rocky soil and those that grow in the good soil. They both at first appear to be healthy plants, and they promise to give a good harvest. It's not until afterwards that a difference begins to appear. The rainy season ends. The heat of the sun increases. The surface temperature rises. The topsoil dries out, and the plants begin to wither and die because the bedrock prevents the plants from sending their roots deep enough to find moisture. Now notice what Jesus says about these stony-grounded hearers. They receive the word immediately with joy. They made a, a better initial showing than the first group did. The first group were just indifferent. They, they, they didn't understand it, they didn't care to pursue it, and it snatched away from them. These did a little bit better, right? Initially, they receive it with great joy. Their hearts um, received it, but the problem was that there was not enough depth of heart, not of depth of interest in order for the plant to flourish. From this, we learn it's possible to make a good beginning but fail to finish. Paul talked about this in the very last letter that he would write when he's in prison anticipating his own martyrdom. And he said, I 
want to be faithful to the end. I want to finish the course that God has given to me. And we must have that same determination as well. He who endures to the end will be saved, Jesus says. It's possible to do better than others, but still not do as well as we might or as well as we ought. It's possible to go further than others, but still come up short. And that's what happens with those who receive the seed in stony ground. They receive the word immediately with joy. But what happened? Tribulations and persecutions arose on account of the word, and they fell away. It's easy to live for God when everything's going well, isn't it? Now, we're not likely to suffer the kinds of persecution that Jesus has in mind in this text because in our culture, we're just we're protected by law, by constitution, by the First Amendment. But there are snickers and there are you know, other forms of per- very, very mild persecution, if we can call it that, for seeking to live faithfully for the Lord. But nevertheless, sometimes people turn away when it's not direct persecution. Just life gets hard. It gets messy. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes family relationships break down. Sometimes we see children become prodigals and wander away from the faith. Sometimes tragedy strikes and a death in the family or a close friend happens. And it's like, well, if God is with me, these terrible things wouldn't happen. And it's just tough. Life is hard and messy. And sometimes these things turn people away. Initially, they receive the word with great joy, but trouble comes. And again, Jesus specifically has in mind tribulation and persecution. Revelation 2.10, once again, the noble church at Smyrna, the only of the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus addresses that he finds no fault with. But he does say, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. The devil was going to do this. John tells us that it was Satan who put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. It was Satan who put it into the heart of Judas to betray him, John 12, 2. And the devil puts it into the hearts of wicked men today to persecute the followers of Jesus. In verse 7 it says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And in verse 22 Jesus gives the explanation. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and listen to this, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. There are certain things in life that have a tendency to choke out the word and its effectiveness in our lives. Now, anyone who's ever grown a garden or tended a lawn or has been a farmer knows that a lot of work has to be put in Uh, to tending and cultivating the ground to keep it productive and to keep the weeds out so that the desired plants can grow and flourish. Certainly farmers know this with their fields. Untended ground will be overrun by weeds that will choke out the desired plants. It's amazing, isn't it, how prolific weeds are. You don't have to do anything to cause the weeds to flourish. I mean, they just, you do nothing and they just take over, right? It's work to keep the weeds out and cause the grass to flourish or the flower bed to flourish or the vegetables to grow or the wheat to grow. I mean, imagine walking by your neighbor's house and he's out there pulling up flowers. You say, what are you doing? I'm flowering my garden. 
so that the weeds can grow. <laughs> no? That's not how it goes, right? We, we pull the weeds so the flowers can flourish or the vegetables can grow. Right? The weeds, if they're allowed to grow, will choke out the flowers or the vegetables or the crops that we so desperately want to see flourish in our fields. You don't have to do anything for the weeds to grow. They'll do just fine all by themselves. But they'll eventually choke out the flowers and other useful plants. And so Jesus uses this everyday experience of life to illustrate a certain type of person who hears the word of God but is so distracted by worldly things that the word which was sown in his heart is choked out. It is overrun. It has no room to grow. And Jesus specifically mentions thorns. He says, the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them. And he mentions two other things the thorns represent, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And in Mark's account, a third item is mentioned, and that is the desires for other things. And all these things, our cares, our worries, as legitimate as they are, and I don't mean to make light of them, and we all have them, we all have our troubles We all have our share of afflictions, whether it's illness or the things we've mentioned before. We have things to deal with, and I don't mean to be making light of these things. But it's possible for these things to be so all-consuming in our minds and in in, in what we give our attention to that it causes us to um, allow the word to be choked out. Again, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. All of these things, the duties and responsibilities we have that oftentimes weigh so heavily upon us that make us think, I don't have time to read God's word. I've got all of these duties that I've got to fulfill. And if I don't get started early, you know, I, I can't get it all finished. And so we, we neglect for the day. And we can justify it. Today is a really busy day. I just don't have time for this today. I'll get back to it tomorrow. And then tomorrow something else comes up and we say, okay, okay, it's been two days, but I promised myself the third day. And we postpone it and postpone it until finally the word is choked out. And the power of God in our lives, the means by which he wishes to express his power in our lives is choked out. And we find ourselves wandering further and further from the fold. Don't allow yourself to be or don't allow the word to be choked out in your own life. Tend to the garden of your soul. Cultivate your heart so that it remains sensitive to the things of God, so that it yearns for God's word. Not every experience that we have with God's word, and those of you who have been walking with the Lord know this by your own experience, but not every time we open God's word to the words on the page just leap off the page and just hit us right between the spiritual eyes, and we think, man, this was a very productive and powerful moment in God's presence. Most of the time, it's not like that. But we're learning little by little. And little by little, we are growing. And sometimes the growth seems to be undiscernible. We're not aware that it's taking place. It's like going into the gym for the first time and working out. And you feel weaker when you come out of the gym than when you went in. You know, but you keep at it. And you keep at it. And over time, if you're weight, lifting weights, you can add more weight. Or if you're running, you can run a further distance or a faster pace, little by little. Any movement from one day to the next doesn't seem like very much. But 
keeping at it, being persistent over time, you see the progress. And the same is true spiritually. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline that we need to develop. Not only the Word of God, but prayer and fellowship as well. But we're focusing specifically here today about the Word. Now in verse 8, Jesus says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. In verse 23, Jesus says, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. And in Mark's version, it is, they are, These are they who hear the word and accept it. Luke has, they, These are they who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So putting all of these various versions together, we have this. Hearing the word of God, understanding it, which is not always a passive thing. Sometimes we, we, I mean, we have to take the initiative to seek understanding. But again, the indifferent hearer of God's word or the indifferent reader of God's word will not take the pains to understand it. So hearing it, it comes to us, whether through our ears or through our eyes as we read it, taking pains to seek understanding, accepting it, because we can hear it, we can understand it, and still reject it. But we hear it. We seek to understand it. We accept it. And then he says, holding it fast in an honest and good heart. And what is the result? Bearing fruit with patience. What kind of fruit? The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of a godly life. Isn't there something beautiful about a godly person, a man or a woman? And there's something attractive about that person. There's something beautiful because virtue, godliness, is beautiful, and we are attracted to things of beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty are all related to each other. And when a person is walking in the truth, when a person is, is being virtuous, living virtuously, or living in a godly way, there's something very beautiful about that. This, this is bearing fruit for God. And this describes a person who joyfully embraces the word of God. Such a man was David, who said, I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Would that we could say we could all say that very sincerely about the totality of God's word. I desire to do your will, O God. Your word is in my heart. We must embrace sincerely the attitude expressed by the ancient Israelites who said to Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Now, of course, we know that they spoke better than they performed. They spoke better than they performed. But let us both speak and resolve to do. They spoke well, but let's make sure we perform well as well. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Let's resolve to believe every truth revealed, avoid every sin forbidden, practice every duty commanded, Embrace every promise given. Heed every warning threatened without exceptions. As it is the duty of a prophet to declare the whole counsel of God, it is our duty to obey every detail, to embrace everything that God has revealed. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.